But we've always talked about how it's so critical that we build a mass movement. The history shows that mass movements win, fringe movements fail. Mass is key. Hey guys, Blake here from Stuus Media in Munich, Germany, and this is the Resistance Companion Podcast. Back in January 2017, we traveled to Washington, D.C. to document the first of what would become four years of mass protests against the regime of the 45th president. Part of this process included hours of interviews with various people involved in organizing and influencing the movement. This footage has become a limited documentary series called Resistance. If you'd like to watch the series, please go to resistance.stuismedia.com to check it out. While editing together the material, we also had to make hard decisions about how to cut the interviews in order to make the video documentary flow and tell a story. But that usually means sacrificing some of the context or even information that was just too long to include. So to fix this issue, we decided to make this podcast to provide you, the audience, with some more information and context to help you navigate these crazy political times. Our goal is to give activists and interested people more tools to help organize and build a movement that will be necessary in the fights to come. This will be our last podcast of the series, and we decided to save our longest and most in-depth interview to close it out. Today, we'll present my interview with the founders and directors of Popular Resistance, Dr. Margaret Flowers and Kevin Zeese. I'd like to take a moment here at the top to extend our condolences to Margaret, their organization, and all the comrades who are feeling the loss of Kevin. Kevin passed away this September at his home after a lifetime of radical activism. From the anti-war movements of the 60s to organizing the Occupy movement in 2011, which established him as a leader of the resistance movement we find ourselves in today. We decided to release this episode as a tribute to Kevin so that his words can continue to make an impact on people looking for a way to fight back. I only had the pleasure of meeting him the one time, but both him and Margaret's words and examples have been absolutely inspiring for my work over the last four years. So salute to Kevin Zeese, and may his actions continue to inspire future generations of activists. And Margaret's unwavering commitment to winning transformation in America isn't just confined to her work with popular resistance. She's also national co-chair for the Green Party and has run campaigns for federal positions as a Green and is a great example of someone who combines direct action and electoral politics with a singular focus of uniting people by showing them how to do battle with the forces of greed. If you'd like to hear more from Margaret, uh, please check out her podcast called Clearing the Fog on the Popular Resistance Podcast Network. This interview is a little bit longer than the others, but only because it's packed with useful, practical, and historical information that is still relevant as we turn the corner and capitalize on Trump's electoral defeat. As always, my producer and fellow traveler, Randy M. Salo, will join me after the interview for a short analysis. So please get comfortable and have a listen to my talk with Dr. Margaret Flowers and Kevin Zies. My name is Margaret Flowers. I'm a pediatrician by training. I have uh, three children and I practiced medicine for about 17 years. And uh, my experience working in the United States healthcare system, which is really about profit and not health, brought me into the world of activism. And since then, really expanded the work that I do. And right now I serve as co-director for popularresistance.org. It's a daily movement news website that also provides resources to activists and we run campaigns and our radio show, Clearing the Fog Radio, out of that as well. My name is Kevin Zeese. I'm a lawyer since 1980, so I'm probably old. <laughs> uh, but I've worked on a whole range of issues over that my career. And it started with the drug war and trying to end, end the marijuana prohibition and then getting onto other drug issues, stopping the spread of HIV AIDS uh, through needle exchanges, stopping the Colombian drug war, drug testing in the workplace. I mean, the drug issue affects so much because the drug war is so big. Uh, but I've been, this, in this century, uh, getting involved in more diverse issues uh, from healthcare to 
uh, new economy, uh, Green Party politics, uh, independent party politics. I've, I've worked with various Greens. I've run for office as a Green. Actually, I ran for office as a Green who was also endorsed by the Libertarians and the Populist Party uh, for U.S. Senate in Maryland. I was Ralph Nader's press secretary. I was Jill Stein's uh, senior advisor. So, been around, for, been around the block. Been around <laughs> the block. Not new to you. Yeah. Um, so, just to kind of warm up question, I guess. Um, so, this movement that started sort of in reaction to Trump, so to say, uh, and we're calling it the resistance movement. What does the resistance mean to you? Start with Mark. Well, I would say that the resistance movement has been going on for quite a while now. And that has actually been one of our missions at Popular Resistance. Um, initially, it was just to expose the amount of resistance that's going on in the United States and around the world. The mainstream media doesn't cover it. Most people are unaware of how people are fighting back in their communities more and more. And uh, back in 2011, we were writing that America is in revolt. People just don't actually know that. The anti-globalization movement from the mid to late 90s has really continued. Many of those same activists continue to be involved in you know, resistance that's going on today. So um, I would say that what we're seeing right now is kind of you know, the culmination of, of all this work that's been done, is that people are starting to really recognize that our struggles are very much connected and that we can't work in isolation, that we need to be working in solidarity with each other and on a broad range of issues. And I think that's exactly where we need to be. We often uh, write and talk about the stages of successful social movements. And this was work done by an activist named Bill Moyer who came out of the uh, Southern... Uh, Christian Leadership? Yeah, Southern, sorry, the SLC. I can, yeah. Southern Leadership Southern, Council. Yeah, Southern Leadership Conference or Council, whatever. Anyway, he came out of the civil rights movement. Mm -hmm. um, he was then an anti-nuclear uh, activist. And he looked at these stages that successful social movements go through. There's eight in total. The seventh one is success. And uh, the fourth stage is the takeoff stage. And so we really pegged the Occupy movement in 2011 as a takeoff phase. And we were very much involved with that. Then there's what's called the landing phase, where people say, oh, look, we did all this protest and nothing happened, when actually what we did was we changed the political agenda. We put new issues into the public dialogue. And so it was much, very much about wealth inequality, about corruption on Wall Street, a money-dominated you know, politics. And, um, and so now we're in stage six, which can be of varying lengths. But we're seeing all of the things that need to be done in stage six are happening. So um, part of stage six is people need to recognize that there are problems, that the system can't change those problems, and that they need to change the system to address these crises. We're building national consensus about what those solutions are. People are developing greater political awareness and education. And we're forming networks of activists, not professional activist organizations, which you need to avoid, because those will become part of the nonprofit industrial com complex, where they're more concerned about their issues and their money and their funding and paying their employees than they are about change. And we also play the role of kind of the radical dissent, which is which is critical, that there be activists who are kind of trying to pull the rest of the movement along by maintaining this position of, of staying true to what it is that we're actually fighting for. So that's um, very much of what our work is and kind of where we see that we are in the moment and 
I'm sure you'll have things. <laughs> I, I'd add to that focusing on Trump. Uh, I think we're in a new era of the resistance with the Trump administration coming to power. Uh, it's an escalation, and I think we're going to see an expansion. Frankly, we, we, we saw whether Trump or Clinton were elected, we were going to a period of struggle and a period of protest. We were calling for no honeymoon when people thought Hillary was going to win. We were calling for a presidency of protest when Hillary was going to win. So, but Trump being elected changed things because he brought out a lot of other issues uh, to the front uh, that were always there. He brought out racism. He brought out anti-immigration. He brought out nationalism. Um, you know, and what we're also going to see in the Trump administration, and we can already see it, uh, is corporatism. That really is the overarching issue. If we can change corporate power's influence over policymaking, over elections, and, and as they reduce, build up people power, uh, that's when we'll start to see the kind of changes we need. We don't see an era of reform as the solution. We really see an era of transformation. And so I th we, we, we see the movement as a, a mass movement for economic, racial, and environmental justice. All those are important, and they're all related. And if you look at our website, Popular Resistance, you'll see on the front page multiple movements. Because, and we want people to look at that page and say, look how, the, wow, these are all connected, and start to see the connections. And the connections are, we are all in struggle against a power structure dominated by big money, uh, and by a, uh, against a system that is essentially corrupt. And so while we uh, protested against Donald Trump during his inauguration, we also protested at the Democratic National Committee headquarters in Washington, D.C. We did what we called a mirror protest, where we had mirrors and urged uh, that the Democrats reflect on what they did to create the Trump administration. It was there. A little bit deeper into that, what the Democrats did? The Democrats set an environment for Donald Trump by pursuing policies that benefited the wealthy and increased the wealth divide. They pursued policies that were all of the above energy, uh, which meant more uh, gas, more nuclear, more uh, oil, more pipelines, more infrastructure for carbon energy, which put us over the tipping point. We broke the tipping point under Obama for climate change, which put communities across the country at risk and made them angry. Uh, and I have no doubt many of those communities voted uh, for Trump because the uh, Democrats' energy policies uh, hurt their communities. Uh, it, it put in place a, a health care system that was not designed for people, but was designed by and for the profiteers of health care, the insurance industry, the pharmaceutical industry, and the for-profit investor hospitals. Uh, and so it actually made things worse, Obamacare despite the amazingly effective propaganda that the, uh, the administration put out that convinced many people that they were actually giving them something, uh, it was really a scam. Uh, and I, what I mean by a scam is that people thought they were getting something, but were fooled and not realizing they were actually getting um, mistreated uh, by a system. And you saw it gradually happening with increased premiums, increased out-of-pocket costs, uh, people not being able to afford to get health care even when they had health care. And so Obamacare gave us Trump, gave us the environment, forcing people to buy a product that doesn't really work, the insurance product, uh, really helped to give us Trump. And so on issue after issue after issue, the Democrats for the last eight years 
have put in place policies that benefit big business, privatize public goods, uh, and really create the environment where people are hurting. We have in the United States now uh, people who can't afford a $500 surprise expense. That's a toothache. Like two-thirds of the population. Two-thirds of the population can't afford a five. We have a situation where the six heirs to the Walton family have as much wealth as 35% of the whole you know, public. Uh, so this is why the Democrats created Trump. They have created people in the United States who are economically insecure, see no hope of getting a better economic situation, see no hope for their children or for their communities. And so people voted for change. Hillary Clinton was not change. Hillary Clinton was voting for the status quo. You like the way things are going. Uh, Donald Trump was changed. And even if you weren't sure where he was going, he was at least not protecting the status quo of Wall Street, wars, and uh, Walmart. That's what he, he sold. I think a big piece to talk about, too, is the Trans-Pacific Partnership. Oh, yeah. Um, the TPP. Because... Um, Part of the reason why social movements in the United States have been so weak over the last few decades is that the funders of the social movements very uh, effectively pushed people into silos of single-issue organizing. And so what we saw back in the, in the 60s and 70s of people really making the connections, and Dr. Martin Luther King was an excellent example of this, who made the connections between capitalism, racism. And the reality is we can't get the changes that we need without creating the political environment um, to make these, these possible. We're not going to just win one thing. So, the Trans-Pacific Partnership was an international agreement that impacted really everything that people cared about. Food safety, the cost of health care, internet freedom, environmental protections, workers' protections. And so when we started a campaign against that five and a half years ago, we saw this as an opportunity to bring movements together, to create a movement of movements. And initially, you know, it was it was not in the media for many years. The mainstream media refused to talk about it. And we had to find creative ways to get around that and reach people, which we did. And then we used you know, nonviolent resistance to put pressure on members of Congress. And it, two years ago, Ron Wyden, Senator Ron Wyden's chief of staff, told us that voters don't care about trade. They don't really understand it. It's not a big issue. And, and they just don't care about it. So really, you know, you guys are ineffective because and um, what was one of the major issues in this last presidential election was the Trans-Pacific Partnership. And NAFTA. And NAFTA. And, and the fact that those both were Democratic administrations that were pushing those models. And Trump, you know, ran with that. It was a gift to him. And actually, uh, he's, he's withdrawing the United States from the Trans-Pacific Partnership. Now, we don't have any... Uh, and, yeah, we don't have any, you know, faith in, in his you know, going forward with renegotiating these trade agreements, we anticipate that he's going to continue the same, you know, corporatism and benefiting the billionaires and the multinationals. But it is really interesting how that happened. And, and so we have to get out of these silos. Let me just make one quick point. I think that President Obama campaigning so hard for the TPP in the uh, 2016 election may have cost Hillary Clinton the election. Uh, he, he, put, he was planning on pushing this through in the lame duck session of Congress at the end of his term. And uh, so he had his uh, minions, his cabinet members and others out campaigning 
for the TPP. At the same time, people were feeling hurt by NAFTA. People were feeling economically secure because they lost their jobs, because the cor their community lost their, their, their largest corporation, uh, their largest industry. And uh, so Trump, uh, for Obama going around pushing TPP, when people think economic insecurity from NAFTA, sent the message like, they are not listening to us. They don't hear us. They don't feel our pain. They don't understand how these corporate trade agreements have undermined our communities and our incomes. Uh, my view is that we don't play the game of Democrat-Republican politics. Our purpose is to stand for what we believe in and to push for the ideas and policies that will make the best difference to achieve justice for all people in the United States, economic fairness, uh, and ending militarism. Uh, and so it's not a question whether Trump is right or wrong. Yes, he should withdraw from the TPP. But no, he shouldn't make a more corporate trade agreement. And we need to push for what trade justice means, which means health care as a public good, not as a profit center. Uh, which means uh, energy that is sustainable and consistent with the concern of climate change. So we are, trade agreements should work to make the, uh, the Paris Agreement a reality. Uh, and so on issue after issue, you can look at trade and push the right issue. Same with on the issue of detente with Russia. Uh, we don't believe in uh, war as the best tool for foreign policy. It's, an, it's a tool that's out of date. We need to totally focus on a, a cooperative foreign policy where we're not an empire that dominates, but we are one country that works with other countries. If Trump goes for a, a Russia detente, uh, you know, that's, that's a step in the right direction. If, he wants to, if, if they can agree on uh, stopping the war in Syria and letting them democratically uh, figure out who their leader should be or what their leadership should be, we'll agree with that. But it's not because of Trump. And we will be resisting Trump on many issues uh, because he's wrong on them. And so it really is not about either Democrats or Republicans. We see those as two wings of the same bird. Uh, and they both are you know, fulfilling the interests of the big business interests. There may be a battle going on between the uh, power structure in Washington, D.C. and the power structure in New York. I don't know what, they're, what they're, uh, their conflict is. Our view is represent the people's interests, represent the needs of the planet, and to push those issues forward no matter what Trump, no matter what Schumer, no matter what Pelosi does. That's our job is to stand for what we believe in. We have seen over and over through our work that when people work together strategically, that we can actually win these struggles. And we've won a number of them, and we've seen others win you know, a number of, of struggles. And so you know, for us, we came into this work uh, really trying to figure out, okay, how do we build political power? How does social transformation occur? And we've done a lot of work with other activists on you know, studying this and writing about it. And it's really um, creating a social movement. And now we actually have 100 years of research on social movements that actually documented like, what works. And there's an excellent book called Why Civil Resistance Works. And so it shows that when you have a broad-based diverse movement, when you have 3.5% of the population mobilized, only 3.5% mobilized, and they're, they're reflecting a national consensus on the issues that no government, dictator or democratic government, has been able to withstand that kind of opposition. And so that's been our goal all along, is how do we continue to educate and mobilize this broad movement of movements to win? And hand-in-hand and hand with that is to have, as we see in the United States, is to have 
also a political voice for that. And so that's why we are also involved in independent politics and building up and strengthening that. We know that um, you know, right now, it's interesting, the Democrats are calling for basically their base to d not ask for anything. They're saying, don't ask us for anything. We just have to work together to stop the Trump agenda for the next four years. And, you know, and we're going to hear all kinds of speeches, we already are from the Democrats, about how you know, they would really do this if they were in power. And of course, we know they're not going to do any of those things when they, when they get in power. We see that over and over again. Um, and so we're not listening to that. And we actually put out what we call a people's agenda. And we put that out immediately after the election. And it's based on work that came out of our work during the whole preparation for the Occupy movement. We organized beginning early in 2011 for an occupation in Washington, DC in October of 2011. And um, we had about 200 activist groups from around the country involved in that organizing. We had 100 people in our core group that were doing the act of organizing. We had uh, 55 state coordinators in 36 different states organizing to bring people. And we kind of started to develop this people's agenda. And then during the occupation, people formed working groups to talk about human rights or elections or workers. And, and they put forth and continued to shape that agenda. And then as movements have uh, continued to, like the Black Lives Matter movement, um, the immigrants' rights movements have continued to grow in the United States, that agenda has continued to be shaped. And we believe that that's how we mobilize people, is by calling for these bold solutions, and that we know that these are never going to be put on the table under a Democratic or a Republican administration until we organize as people to put them on the table. So, um, so that's you know, where our, a lot of our focus is right now. So on that note, that was one of the main reasons why I want to talk to you guys, because I think it was in Kevin, uh, during the panel uh, yesterday, you had mentioned this, uh, this number, the 3.5%, all we need to get is a 3.5%. And I found that really fascinating, because it was something I haven't heard really yet, that if we can just mobilize that many, we can actually start pushing demands onto Washington. And it dawned on me that in the last election, I mean, it was spread out over multiple uh, candidates, but in the last presidential election, it was close to 3.5% of people that went for a, an outside candidate. They didn't go for Democrat or Republican. So I'm wondering how do we take that, how do people take the kind of fractious, independent parties and mobilize those into one kind of block that really has, these are our demands and we're going to push this forward. How do we get there? Well, first the 3.5% is about, um, not about elections. Unfortunately, elections in the United States are usually two-party affairs, which require 50-plus percent. And if it's a three-party affair, if you get actually a, a decent third-party candidate, you're talking, you know, 38 percent could win. And candidates have won with 38 percent. But the 3.5 percent is another aspect of power, which I think we don't want to minimize. I think it's even more important than elections. But I'll talk about elections, too. Uh, but the 3.5 percent refers to people being mobilized uh, on issues that the, there is national consensus on. And usually, often it's less than 3.5% that actually can win. Now, we won the Trans-Pacific Partnership vote uh, issue by making TPP stand for toxic political poison and so that every politician was running away from it. Uh, and that included even people who had supported it, like Hillary Clinton, who had called it the gold standard when she was Secretary of State, now ran away from it. 
It included a Senate candidate, Robert Portman, who had been a trade representative, who ran away from it. Uh, and so that's the kind of power. And that was less than 3.5% mobilized. That was well under 1% mobilized, mm -hmm. succeeded in making that. Same with the net neutrality fight. You know, we had the largest number of comments ever on a Federal Communications Commission rulemaking proceeding, but it was a tiny number of people who actually were mobilized. Uh, so there, we, have to, we shouldn't underestimate the power of people uh, in struggle. In fact, that's really where the power lies for most of us, and it has been throughout our history. And so before we get to elections, we have to understand that our power to change the political climate, to open up the political debate, to reverse the narrative of the corporatists and put forward our agenda is very significant and it doesn't take a lot of people to accomplish it. Um, on elections, the United States is the most deeply entrenched two-party system in the world. Uh, and it's deeply entrenched in our history. And the two parties, the duopoly, the Democrats and Republicans, have put in place laws that, and, and, um, and tactics that make it even harder for two parties to break through. It goes from the registration of voters to the counting of votes. Uh, in some states, it's very hard to register as a third party member. They don't even uh, allow it. They, uh, they, some states, how you vote in the primary is what party you're in. And so they give you two parties of primaries, you vote in the primary, and you're one of those parties. Uh, in other states, uh, registration can be lost if you're not able to keep your number of uh, uh, registrants up, or if over the, every two or four years you're required to gather signatures. If you don't gather them, all those registrations are gone. So you start from zero. Uh, so right from the beginning, that's a gigantic hurdle and very expensive hurdle. And when you do get those petition signatures, they're routinely challenged. Challenged, yeah. And so then you're spending even more resources in those legal struggles to justify your... Like petition. Richard Smith signs his name Richard J. Smith, and you don't count it. You know, I mean, that kind of thing. <laughs> uh, and uh, so registration is a problem. Uh, participation in campaigns is a challenge because you have to get ballot access. And on a presidential level, that's a massive problem. Um, because uh, every state has different ballot access laws. And each of them has like little curly cue tricks. And if you're not in that state, able to talk to people who know about that, you're going to make mistakes. Uh, you know, and in Texas, for example, they give you a very short amount of time to get, I think it's 60,000 signatures. And the people who signed cannot have voted in either the Democrat or Republican primary. <laughs> I mean, you know, you know what it's like to go up to ask someone for directions or ask them for a cigarette? Imagine going up, did you vote in the primary? You know, can you get, sign your name in, for this government document? I mean, oh man, it's a tough challenge. And every state has those different, and so we have no standard. So right there, ballot access. Uh, next big challenge is debates uh, and getting your name out and be participating in the, in the campaign. Uh, at every level, this is a, a problem. And, uh, and of course, how the media covers the debates is also a problem. The media is a constant problem in all this process. But they won't even cover third party candidates. That's right. I mean, Margaret ran for U.S. Senate uh, in Maryland. Into last year. In, in, in 2016. And uh, she ran as a Green. And there was only one televised debate, which is bizarre to begin with. Yeah. <laughs> uh, the Democrat who had raised uh, more than $10 million knew he could buy his airtime. So he put, on, he put on commercials that the final line was someone saying, 
Chris Van Hollen was a godsend. <laughs> yeah. I mean, he's not going to enter a debate and be you know, taken apart for where he stands on these, uh, all these issues where he's wrong. So he, he just wanted to have one debate. And in that debate, of course, Margaret, despite long efforts. Well, it was being held at a public university. It was hosted by the Center for Public Policy. The League of Women Voters was a sponsor of the debate and then two media outlets. And so beginning months before that, I started pressuring them and they wouldn't even meet with me to talk about it. And I literally like went to the, the head of the department's office one morning. We went down there together first thing in the morning and her receptionist let us in and, and we said we'd like to meet with so-and-so and she said let me go check and see if she's available and she went up the stairs to see if she was available, came down and said she's not and as the... Well, as she went upstairs, we went upstairs no, too. No, 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 I was, no, what actually <laughs> happened was as she came down the stairs and went back to her office, we went up the stairs and just confronted her, the, the director of the department directly and, you know, so even... With, they could not justify it. She would not making, talk to us, really. Yeah, they just kept making more and more excuses, and we were pressuring them, and they still wouldn't let us in. And so the day of the debate, we said, this is just really crazy. And so we went to the debate. We already knew that we had caught the Democratic senator on film, the candidate, saying that he was willing to debate me. The Republican candidate had said she was willing to debate me. And so as the debate was beginning, Kevin stood up, and he was in the middle of a row, and he stood up and said one thing before we get started, you know, Delegate Kathy Schlega, are you willing to let Dr. Flowers debate? She said yes. And then he turned, you know, Congressman Chris Van Hollen, are you willing to let Dr. Flowers debate? And he said, I've always said that. And so as the police were going to remove Kevin from the room, I just walked straight down the aisle and up onto the stage and shook their hands and stood in the center and said, I'm so glad to be here. And the uh, person that was running Made the a great speech. Well, the person that was running the, the, the media person said, okay, now would you please go away so that we can start our organized debate? And that's when I made my speech. I said, no, actually, I'm ready and willing to participate in this debate, blah, blah, blah. They called the police. The police dragged me off of the stage. What was interesting... And you're shouting on the way out, this is how they treat Senate candidates? <laughs> Have them removed from the debate? And I, and I said, you know, people need to know what their choices are. You're keeping people from knowing what their options are. And, and that struck a chord. It was really interesting because, you know, you, you never have any clue about what the impact of your actions are we, going we, to be. We were afraid of a backlash because that's not very senatorial. Yeah, actually, I woke up that morning really stressed out. For about two hours, we had to, like, talk about it as, you know, how do we make sure that this looks dignified? I don't want to be you know, portrayed as some like screaming crazy person. And it, and it, fortunately, it didn't come off that way. And we had friends who were in India who said, we just saw you get dragged off the stage in the debate. We had friends whose, you know, grandmother is in Mexico. And she said, you, and, and actually he was working on my campaign and his grandmother called him and said, I just saw your candidate on the major morning show on, you know, Univision in Mexico. So it, it, and CNN actually had it at the top of their page for a whole 24 hours. So it, people, after that, when I was out in Baltimore and Maryland and people saw me, even like driving next to me in a car, we'd come up to a light and they'd be like, you're the one that did that. Thank you for fighting for us. It was really interesting how the public responded. They so want people to stand up. And Margaret had this this, the, the largest vote ever for a Green in Maryland or a third party candidate in Maryland. 100,000 voters, and uh, 
that's, that's eight times more than the registered greens. So she reached a lot of people, and there were more than a million views, multi-million views, of that moment mm -hmm. where the, you know, she spoke up and the police dragged her off the stage. A lot of our job is to expose the truth. Yeah. What a fraud of a democracy it is. We've been dragged out of a few places. <laughs> <laughs> so right, so there's obviously built-in barriers for yes. yeah, we didn't get people to get into the system. Um, one thing that we've kind of been talking about and sort of focus on uh, of a reason why the Trump thing has really expanded the, the idea of resistance, the idea of kind of more civic disobedience is that he was obviously elected by a minority in what's supposed to be a democratic system. I think a lot of people are wondering how do we abolish the Electoral College because it's obviously undemocratic. Uh, but I think a lot of, or at least a lot of people I talk to don't have any faith that the Democrats, even if we got them back into power in 2020 are gonna, or 2018 are gonna do anything. Um, well, what, what kind of things, so let's just say, you know, best case scenario, we're able to get some more progressive people into, into power, what could they do to abolish, what kind of like specific policy changes could they make to abolish it? Well, the Electoral College um, is a constitutional issue to really abolish it. Um, and, now, uh, and so that is a constitutional amendment. Now, there are some states who've taken uh, past legislation at the state level saying that their state will count, divide the electoral college based on popular vote once a majority of states have done so. And so you have a lot of states pass laws that would make the electoral college almost meaningless. And so that's a possibility. But I don't think the electoral college is not the problem. Right. Uh, I think that's one of those things that Democrats like to push to blame. Well, that's a distraction. They would love everybody to go to off and just time. blame the Electoral College because yeah. that takes, they don't have to face reality if that's. And Hillary, Hillary's majority, if you took California out, for example, where she won by a landslide, that's where her majority came from. You take California out, Trump won the country. And so let's, not, let's not fool ourselves into thinking that the Democrats are a majority of the country. They're, they were not a majority of the country if you take California out. Now, California is part of the country, so. But, but that, that's a reality of what it is. California is as big as Canada. For people who may not be familiar with the United States, it's like a country in itself. It's huge. So there are a lot, but there are a lot of things that need to be done both by independent parties and by policies uh, to make our democracy real. Um, but you have to realize that a lot of these changes are fundamental because the United States uh, electoral system was set up by the Constitution, which was passed in the 1700s, late 1700s. And so while it may have been cutting edge at that moment, now it's outdated, antique model of how democracy should work. Written by the oligarchs. And even that, and that you have to always remember about the US Constitution, who wrote it. Yeah. Uh, there, you know, I, I don't want to get into a long thing about this, because I know this is not what you're interested in, but you'll be interested anyway. <laughs> Uh, the 10 years before the U.S. Revolution were the, so democratic. Uh, it was like an ongoing Occupy. Uh, they did an ongoing Gandhian revolt. They used nonviolence in ways that now we would classify as classic nonviolence. Boycotts, creating their own economy, creating their own governance, uh, taking uh, elected officials out of their offices and replacing them with people holding constant general assemblies where the leader of the assembly would change. So it was a totally direct democracy. So they were doing amazing things with democracy. 
when the revolution came, it was a war, and that changed everything as far as who the leaders were, because then it became male generals. Actually, before that, it was women who, were, women. who had a very leadership role. And, but the war changed that. It made it into more of a, a you know, up-down, hierarchical generals are in charge, and our first president was the general uh, you know, in the American Revolution. Uh, and, and then the, those who wrote the Constitution were not those who were holding general assemblies. It was those who owned the most slaves in the country. They were the largest landowners. There were lawyers like John Adams who defended plantations. When slaves escaped, they would say that slave gets sent back. Uh, you know, so it, it, was, it, was, it was oligarchs. And rather than writing a human rights constitution, they wrote a property rights constitution because the property they wanted to protect was their slaves and their plantations. If we had had a real revolution, and a human rights constitution, slaves would have been freed, women would be voting, people who didn't own property would be voting. We had only 6% of the population voting after the revolution. Uh, and so it would have been a, a much wider number of people voting, women would have more rights, and we would have had a land reform that had broken up those plantations that were made by slaves but given to people by royalty. Those plantations should have been broken up in a real revolution. But we didn't have, we had an oligarch revolution. And the Constitution that came out of that, we are still living with today and puts property rights ahead of human rights. And so that's a, there's a lot of change that needs to happen. And uh, the electoral system needs dramatic change. And I think the top thing, of course, because of the way we've evolved, is getting money out of politics. 90% of the public wants money out of politics. They recognize the corruption of government. And we can't have an equal playing field if uh, you have a money-based uh, voting system. So we, we actually have to have an explicit right to vote. Because without an explicit right to vote, they can play games at the registration level, as they did in this 2016 election, and deregistered hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people. Took them off the registration. If they had a right to vote, they could fight that. Uh, and so there's some very basic issues. And we could learn a lot from around the world where, where you have multi-party uh, electoral systems, where you have uh, uh, legislatures that are made not just up of the one who got 51%, but the parties that got you know, 40%, 20%, even 10%. And so then you have an ongoing legislative democracy that represents more people. And so the United States needs a major overhaul to become a real democracy. Right now we're a mirage democracy with uh, elections that are manipulated, uh, and we, the, the two parties primarily use fear uh, to get people to vote for one of the two parties. And so we have a lot of work to do uh, to make a real independent. Now, people are rejecting that. Right. We're in a really interesting time now because people are starting to more and more see through this duopoly party system that we have, and they're, they're rejecting it. And so we have the fewest number of people uh, registered as Democrats or Republicans. Less than 30% are Democrats, less than 30% are Republicans, and the majority of the people in the United States are registered as some form of independent or alternative party. So this is the, this is the highest number that it's been in the 75 or so years that they've kept track of that information. I think another very interesting thing in the United States is that people see through this rigged system and they just choose not to participate. So we have very low voter turnout and I think that uh, it's another reason why it's so important for activists and independent party people to put forward a bold transformative agenda. People need something to get excited about, something to be fighting for, and that will inspire more people to come out to vote. And then we have to deal with 
all of the voter suppression that goes on in this country. And so it's, it's typically marginalized communities. And you know, this has been going on for decades. This is nothing new that you know, in communities of color, in low-income communities, they get voting machines that don't work very well. They get lower numbers of voting machines so that they have to wait much longer. And of course, they can't take off of work or they have, you know, get their kids. They, have, they can't stand in line for eight hours to vote. Which um, is real. People do stand in line for four, and, six, eight hours. And literally, you know, we've seen the flyers. They go out into communities and they put flyers out with the wrong date to vote. They put flyers out that say, if you have any kind of outstanding ticket or overdue bill, you can't vote. I mean, they just blatantly lie to keep people away from the polls. And so there's a lot of work that needs to be done just to give people um, access and, and to inspire them to have a reason to participate in the system. And the hubris of the two corporate parties and the corporate media, I think, is really well shown by this fake debate commission. Mm -hmm. they, you know, it's really a, a corporation of the Democrats and Republicans. It was created by the Democrats and Republicans. It's run by the Democrats and Republicans. It's designed to keep the two parties the only ones in the debate. And the media knows all this and yet they play along. If you had a real media, they would say, no, we're not gonna show a, a, a fake debate. You let every candidate in who can achieve 270 electoral college votes. That's what you need to win. If you're on enough ballots to get 270 electoral college votes, you should be in that debate. No, the Democrats and Republicans should not be deciding who's allowed to be heard. Their opponents are allowed to be heard as well. But the hubris of these parties they, they, and they get away with it. You know, so it's just, it's just, to me, that's one of the really strong examples of the, 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 the mirage of U.S. democracy. They don't just define who gets to debate. They also define what is said in the debate. That's so right. the media is moderating the debate, but they can only ask the questions that they're allowed to ask. So when you watch the debates in the United States, the pres presidential debates, you'll see that they're all about personal attacks, and, and anything but the actual issues. Climate change doesn't Especially get mentioned. Yeah, wealth and, no, but it's, it's amazing. It's, hap it's happened over and over again. Uh, the major issues that we should be talking about, the crises that are worsening, wealth inequality is skyrocketing in this country. 25% of our population is in debt. They have negative wealth. And, in, and yeah, it's just... Um, Climate change is a crisis, not discussed in the debates. Yeah. <laughs> yeah that was, it's bizarre. <laughs> it's just a bizarre so-called democracy. It's, a, it's political theater at best. That's why we call it a mirage. So we talk a little bit more about electoral politics. Uh, like you said, I think it'd be good to talk about the history of independent parties and the kind of impacts they've made even though it's always been sort of this two-party system, but the impacts they've been able to push on the politicians over history? Well, independent parties have come up most frequently in the United States during times of social movement. Uh, and whether it's the abolition movement and slavery, whether it's the um, uh, union movement to give workers' rights, or the eight-hour workday was a major, major battle, ending child labor, uh, women getting the right to vote, all these movements, and none of them were represented by the two parties. With the abolition of slavery, uh, there was an agreement between the two parties, the Whigs and the Democrats, that they would not discuss the end of slavery in Congress. It was, not allowed, it was agreed, we will not discuss end of slavery. Uh, and that, and that, that had been an abolition movement since before 
the Declaration of Independence. Thomas Paine. Uh, Thomas Paine, I wish he had been one of the founders. We had a lot of improvement. But, but Vermont was the first state to legalize and, uh, I mean, end slavery. And it was 1777. So they've been. The, the Constitution was written, or the whole revolution came about because of slavery, because of the threat of That's the British Empire. That's a whole Empire. Another, oh my God, another story. The, the, the Britons had uh, abolished slavery, and the slaveholders here were afraid that would come to the United States and we'd better break from there it. There had been a court decision in Britain that said there was no legal basis for slavery. And this was before the U.S. Revolution. And a lot of the plantation owners in the United States were afraid that as a colony of Britain, they had no legal basis for slavery. And they were afraid that Britain was going to... It took years for Britain to finally get rid of slavery, 1820s, but um, you know, the plantation owners saw that coming. And so one reason why a lot of these oligarchs joined the uprising was because of the slave issue. So, but anyways, off the table. Abolition movement forever. The whole time in the United States, there was an abolition movement to end slavery. But they couldn't get any progress. In fact, they were losing ground. Dred Scott decision said slaves have our property, have no human rights. That's in the 1850s, you know. So it's a, and so finally, the abolition would decide they had to do electoral work. And they formed various abolition parties, different names. And they had great candidates. Uh, and they ran well. And they never won the presidency. Uh, but they uh, did get political power. In fact, they were, just like Nader, were called spoilers, you know, uh, because one party was a slave party was losing, which was the uh, Whig Party, uh, which was the lesser evil of those days. The Democrats were the, the war hawks, the plantation owners. The Whigs, the Whigs were the uh, businesses that profited from slavery and opposed the Mexican War. So the, the Whigs were the lesser evil. Uh, and the Democrats, the greater evil in those days. And so uh, gradually, both parties got weakened, and they went to various slave parties. Then the Republican Party was formed, and Lincoln became the most successful and only third-party candidate to get elected president. Uh, some say he was actually, by then, the Whigs were, the Whigs were so gone that he was uh, a new party that was among the four parties that were existing at the time. So that's, the, and that's, how, that's how slavery ended. It took movement and party, a political independent party working together to push that agenda. The same is true about union rights. The populist movement was very strong, challenging uh, the eight-hour workday and child labor and not allowing collective bargaining. But uh, the, 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 pop, the populist party was strong enough that it, it made those happen. Same with trust busting of uh, big oil uh, and big energy interests and banking interests. Again, third parties, the progressive party pushing to make that happen. The Socialist Party laid out the agenda for the New Deal. Uh, and so it's the combination of political parties that are independent of the duopoly and a movement that has made those differences. And, it's, and it, most of the time it's been without winning the presidency. Not, a lot of these parties won lower levels. They won at the local level, the state level. And they, Congress. Won, they won governorships, they won members of Congress. They didn't win the presidency. And, but even without winning, they are the ones who changed the course of the country on some of the most important issues. Women wouldn't have the right to vote if they hadn't had an independent party challenging both parties. Uh, I mean, how, how can you have a political party if you're not allowed to vote? And yet they did it. Uh, and so uh, there is a, a history of how independent parties actually change the country in the most significant directions, not in reforms, but in transformations. And I think that's always the conflict, reform or revolution. Women voting, 
was not a reform. That was a major transformation. Unions getting the right to organize and collectively bargain was a major transformation that for a long time really protected workers until recently, really. Uh, and so I think the role of third parties often, even though our goal is to take power, often is to uh, force our issues onto the political table and to win them. Let's fast forward that and then put that into the context of what we're calling the resistance now. A lot of what we're trying to figure out in this project is, so we had these incredible protests and marches and summits and we've seen a lot more communication between the different sort of fractious movements or silos or, or parties. How do we, what's the next step? So you guys obviously have a great historical context to put this in. What's the next step for all these different groups? to really start putting that pressure and moving us into that, that realm of transformation. Yeah, I mean, again, this is work that we've been doing for a long time. So it's, it's exciting to see that we're kind of in another takeoff phase. But do you see this phase? as a movement? Like, there's a lot more attention, obviously, coming towards you guys. Yeah, no, no it's, it's, it's great because, um, as we said earlier, Trump really takes everything that has been existing in this country and puts it right in your face. You can't hide from it. And two days after the election, there was uh, people called for a march in Baltimore, and we went out to support that march and be with them. And I was talking, it was mostly young people, and I was talking to them, and I said, well, if Hillary Clinton had been elected, would you be out here? And they're like, no. So, like, so, um, so Trump has mobilized people. That's a good thing. I think that... Um, it's critical that people organize locally in their communities. That, that's one thing that um, we're not doing enough of here in the United States is that whatever the issue is that's going on in your community, that's where people need to be organizing around that and building those relationships. And then it's the job kind of of the organizers to keep building these networks, these loose networks that exist. And I think that more and more you know, as we kind of come together on the bigger fights, you know, we're organizing in our communities, but we also, we see this in like the climate movement. We see that um, communities are fighting specific fossil fuel projects and that they don't want to have in their communities. But then when there's uh, something going on at the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission, people come from those frontline groups and they fight together there. And so I think we need to, and it does, it happens on a lot of things. We see that people that are fighting for housing rights will be fighting in their communities to stop foreclosures and evictions, but then there's something in Congress or the DOJ and they gather together and come there and fight for that. So um, I think that right now, um, people are gonna be organizing and need to be organizing around protecting Muslim communities, protecting LGBTQ communities, protecting immigrant, immigrant communities, also understanding that we're going to be seeing a, an evisceration of our weak and frail social safety net that we have and that poverty will continue to grow. People will continue to not be able to meet their basic needs and so we have to organize in our communities around these issues as well. And um, so, the, you know, this is a really, I think for us, a very exciting time and a moment when we have a real possibility over the next day, decade. But people have to see that. Mm -hmm. it, this is not just a, a, a quick fix type of thing. You know, let me say where we're going from here. I mean, first off, the Resist J20, Occupy Inauguration, the Answer Coalition were the three major groups organizing for the, for the inauguration. And they started organizing 
when Hillary Clinton was likely president. So a lot of people got that we had to struggle with whoever was elected. It got bigger when Trump was elected because he brought in other issues right into our face of racism and, and misogyny. misogyny and hate. And so that kind of brought a lot of people out. I think where we go from here, we have to think bigger than usual. You know, for example, in the United States, the idea of um, a, a boycott or a general strike was pretty much off the table. Um, an effective boycott was very hard to make happy in the United States. A general strike was impossible. Uh, but now we're seeing people talking about these issues. We're seeing people urging uh, people who work in civil service, government institutions, government unions, uh, playing a resistance role. And we saw that already happening when Trump, in the pre-inauguration, was trying to get the names of the people who worked on climate change uh, in the Department of Energy, and they refused to, to give it to them. Because uh, people actually make things run. Without the people doing their jobs, the country doesn't run. We can become an ungovernable country if people realize they have the power to stop the country. And if we can stop the country from operating, that changes everything. And so I think people need to uh, realize that the, the, lim the limits we had on us before as a resistance movement uh, could disappear. And we can actually do much more than we ever expected we could do. And um, that's what we have to do. We have to think that we can, we can do more than we could ever do. And that includes domination of the media through our own personal and social media efforts. It includes uh, stopping the government from functioning. It includes uh, mass marches that actually close down uh, the government uh, or cities on a weekday, not a weekend march, but actually close things down. That's the power we can have. We can create a movement that's more powerful than Donald Trump and the Democratic Party. And I sent Democrat intentionally. <laughs> <laughs> There's just a couple more things I want to talk about. I was really, so we were at both the J20 protests and the Women's March, and it was sort of a night and day thing, like the kind of liberated feeling we got of being around, even what people would call the sort of the violent part of the protest, it did make you feel like, well, at least we're, you know, something's happening, we're not like just mm -hmm. rolling over here. Mm -hmm. And then of course at the Women's March it was much more kind of a peace, love, oh, grandma's here, like, you know, kind of nice thing. Obviously drew out more numbers, but I, I got the impression from a lot of sort of more long-term activists, people from Occupy, were in the anti-war movement forever, they were a little pissed off about the march because it felt like they were kind of co-opting something they'd been doing forever and it was like only when you elect the most awful person for president now you guys seem to to want to take it to the street. What I'm wondering is, is there a way to to kind of combine those or be able to like pull from sort of the women's march group, I don't know how to really call it, but to be able to pull from that and add more to, to the progressive ranks or sort of these like kind of hardcore activists. More radical resistance. Right, exactly. mm -hmm. Do you want to take that or should I? There? Are you noticing any more? Well, Chris was really good on that this morning. Yeah, and you could speak to what he said. I think that, um, you know, for me as a longtime activist, my, you know, your kind of first thought is, wow, you know, Obama was doing all of these really awful things for so long and you refused to come out. Now you get it. But the reality is, 
I'm really glad that now they're getting it because we can't chastise people for not being willing to come out earlier. People get activated when they get activated. And once you get activated and your eyes are opened, it's really hard to close them. And so I think that, that people got a little bit of a sense of power who maybe have never even marched before. Um, having those large numbers gives people this whole sense of, wow, I'm not alone in this. So many people care about this. We can do this and inspires them. And I think that out of those marches, people have made relationships and they're going to continue those relationships and hopefully continue pressuring. And it's not something that we go out and, and try to, to do. It's something that really happens organically. And, and so I think that what, we're, what we've seen over the you know, last decade in this country is just how more and more people, as they recognize that now, oh, now I'm impacted, they get activated and fight back. And this is how the movement grows. Yeah. Um, when we started organizing for Occupy in 2011, uh, we had no idea whether we'd be 50 people in a park camping out or whether there'd be lots of people joining us. Uh, and what happened was we started organizing April and uh, in September Occupy Wall Street started. We started in October. Uh, and by the time Occupy Wall Street started, uh, it was still small. They had 50 to 100 people sleeping out in Zuccotti Park. Media I had been talking to you about uh, the Occupy coming uh, said, that's it? And uh, then that weekend, um, you saw spurts of growth because the police overreacted. Uh, in, in New York City, there was a march. The police broke the march up, separated people, arrested some folks, had them behind a mesh cur curtain. Young women. Young women and behind a mesh curtain, and uh, they were just arrested and doing nothing. And then some officer um, came over and pepper sprayed them. And it was caught on about 10 cell phone cameras. And uh, the police first tried to deny it. Then they tried to blame the women, but there was just too much evidence. And so everyone saw the police reaction. In fact, while it was happening, this white-collar cop spraying the women, who's a lieutenant or something, uh, a blue-collar cop, a street cop, was saying, wow, I can't believe he's pepper spraying them. Like, wow, that's crazy. So even right from the beginning, there was a division among the cops. And that night, there was uh, MSNBC had a, uh, Larry O'Donnell, whose father was a cop, did a um, monologue criticizing the police and supporting the Occupy. The Occupy grew. Suddenly, Occupy started happening around the country. The next weekend was the famous Brooklyn Bridge moment, where the police led the occupiers onto the bridge, then trapped them there and arrested hundreds of them. Once again, all on camera, everyone saw it happen, and the Occupy massively grew. We had been organizing for months, and many of our local organizers decided to stay home and create their own Occupy, which was great. And so by the time we started, our, even though we were the earliest organizers, by the time we actually started, uh, we were starting around the Afghan war anniversary and the budget, uh, austerity budget starting, and so we were trying to link war and economy and all those issues together. Uh, by the time we started, there were hundreds of occupies across the country. And yet, and look, and then, and then that went on for a month, two months, three months. And as it went on, the power structure got more and more nervous. You could see the power structure shaking. 
How many people were involved in Occupy? 350 to 400,000 people. That's all. Out of a population of 350 million. 0.01%. Tiny number of people. And look how the power structure was shaking. They had a calls where all the mayors and police chiefs were talking with the Department of Homeland Security. You know, how do we deal with this? What do we do? They were nervous. They sent in infiltrators. They, you know, did all sorts of stuff to cause trouble. They were nervous. Then, now, uh, or a couple years ago, you know, we've been following the movement every day for years now on, on popular resistance. That's what we do. We follow the movement. We report on the movement. It's been constantly growing since then. Whether it's the climate change movement, whether it's the Black Lives Matter movement, whether it's the poverty wages and the fight for 15, whether it's student debt, uh, pick an issue. Every movement's been growing and growing and growing. And then you had the 2016 election. The two worst candidates in history, both disliked, even by their own voters, even by their own parties, and both challenging their own parties. Uh, in, in both challenges party challenged. Trump challenged the Republicans. Sanders challenged the Democrats. Sanders echoed a lot of the views of the movement, he, you know, uh, he, and he kept on adding more. He was helping us to build our national consensus. And now we look at uh, in the movement, and we're not 350,000 people anymore. We had more people on, at one demonstration than we had back in 2011. And so the movement is growing. And its potential for growth is hard to even imagine at this stage. We don't know the potential of growth. We don't know what young woman in that mass march, uh, the Women's March, is going to be energized to start a new human rights movement for women. Because that's needed. And it needs to be an independent Democratic Party as well. Uh, you know, uh, and even though the Democrats were at that Women's March, on the stage was Debbie Wasserman Schultz, who pretty much undermined Bernie Sanders. She was on the stage. Uh, and, but even with that, there are people in that crowd who we can't predict what they're going to do next and how they will organically grow personally and create something that we can't even imagine now. And the same thing is true with the other J20 protests. You know, a lot of people, uh, even though there were some serious organizers working with that, including us, there were also a lot of people who were new to protests and got a sense of their power. How are they going to grow? And then Trump is going to be taking extreme actions, and the Democrats can be refused to stand for anything. They even stopped Bernie Sanders from introducing his single-payer health care bill because they need unity, and single-payer is divisive, <laughs> even though 80% of Democrats support it and 60% of the public supports it. So... Democrats' inactions, you know, false front, Trump's open aggressiveness. Uh, who knows how this is going to move? And so we see a tremendous potential with the resistance. We think the resistance is building on years of experience now where they've thought through tactics, they've thought through strategies, are much better informed when Occupy began. So I think the potential now is really phenomenal. And I think we're going to see a movement that is more powerful than the government and really dictates where the government goes. And that's happened before. Richard Nixon was no friend of civil rights, the environment, open, open relations with communist countries. Uh, he was not a friend of any of that. But because the movement was there, he was forced to take those actions, even winding down the Vietnam War uh, you know, in his first term. And a, a key element is um, the police. I mean, in Germany, yes, it very was key. when they refused to fire on the protesters that really everything fell apart and the wall came down. And the activists didn't even see that coming. 
they that's the other thing you know yeah that you never know how close you are and chris hedges was there covering that when the berlin wall fell and he talked to activists the week before and he said when do you think that you know you're going to win and they were like oh it wasn't maybe. even what wasn't even when you win when do you think you'll have border crossings right. between eastern and western europe and, and germany they, and they said maybe in a year maybe in a year we'll be across the border <laughs> and within a week the wall was coming was coming down the research shows that um, First, it shows that nonviolent movements are more effective than violent movements, two to one, because you need to build a mass movement and you want to draw people in, and violence causes people to flee. We saw that on Friday with the uh, Black Bloc, that some of the activists that we knew said, oh, well, we were there, and then when they started you know, breaking windows, we left and came down here. Um, but the research also shows that when the police join your side, you have a 60% greater chance of winning. And so um, we're already kind of also starting to see that, where in some of our protests recently, the police have stood back and kind of let us do what we wanted to do. And then as we were leaving, get this little thumbs up, you know, <laughs> signs. <laughs> so. Um, what happens when Trump orders the police to fire on protesters? Yeah. That will be the test. It's interesting that here in the United States, it may be other places as well. I mean, so uh, there are a lot of older activists that come out of kind of the 60s movement or grew up seeing what happened during the 60s and, and, um, and are able to kind of be out there in the streets or doing organizing. And I think part of that too is the, is the fact that, you know, once you're retired, you have a little bit more time to focus on these things. We tend to see that when people have to, they're having their families a lot of times, then they tend to not be able to be out as much. And we see this in some of the younger activists that we've worked with. Um, millennials are starting to get much more engaged now. And when we were first organizing Occupy, we were really trying to reach out to students and they just weren't that interested. And then once Occupy started to kind of pick up, then there was more interest. I think that um, as millennials are really starting to get it more and more that if they want a livable future, they're going to have to fight for it now. And I see this in my own children. I have three college-age mm -hmm. children. And they have a lot of questions and a lot of concerns. How does, how does social transformation happen? What do we need to do? Who's going to give us our, you know, our orders <laughs> of where to be? And um, so th I think this is a good thing. I think movements are strong when we can have a very diverse movement of those who have experience that can provide some guidance to those who don't, but then the millennials bring in these skills and talents and, and an energy and even a new way of thinking about things that older activists get entrenched in what they're thinking. And so if, if that can be nurtured, if that young old relationship can become a really collaborative relationship, that's very powerful. You know, millennials have some crisis issues. I mean, climate change, that is their middle age. It's going to be hitting solidly. And so survival is really an issue. Uh, the, the, debt, the debt they're carrying uh, from college is unprecedented. They are the most screwed generation. And uh, they, need, they have good reason to stand up for something different. Uh, but we've always talked about how it's so critical that we build a mass movement. The history shows that mass movements win, fringe movements fail. Mass is key. And so we want more people of a wide variety of sorts. Uh, it's not just the young and the old. Uh, it also, we look at when we build a mass movement, we want to consciously 
reach out to people in the power structure. Power structure could mean people in the media, people in unions, uh, people, students would be a power structure. People in the two parties are part of the power structure. And one of the most important groups in the power structure are the security state people, the police and the military. Uh, and if we can start to show a break between the police and the government, uh, and that's not easy because the police are paid for by the government, they do the government's work. But if they start to be given orders that go against their interests, because police live in the community. Their families in the community. Their kids are in college debt. Their family, their mother can't afford health care. You know, they have all the same problems that everybody else has. And if we are intentional in reaching out to people in the law enforcement uh, community and let them know that in a new world, uh, they will still have an income uh, and that they'll have a better job. They won't be doing things they don't want to do. And they start to see that, you know, there's a, a camaraderie between what we're trying to do and their families and lives and their communities. And when the police break, that means we've won. It increases the chance, according to 100 years of history, it increases the chance of the movement succeeding by 60%. That's major. And so when you see that, part of our job in building a movement is to pull people from the power structure so that as we grow, the power structure weakens. We're taking blocks out of their wall. And you take enough blocks out of the wall, what happens? The wall falls. Would you say you have to like engage, so just as an example, so police, you just have to engage them on a more intrapersonal level instead of sort of a hierarchical level of police, citizen, more direct, because I don't know, I just have a hard time believing that I'm going to be able to get cops to come you know, over to the protesters, just from my experience. Well, you know, during Occupy, the Baltimore Police Union, which is not a great union, it's a pretty hardline police union, endorsed the Occupy. We had uh, police at our Occupy putting money in our donation box. Uh, we patrolled, you want to talk about that? Well, yeah, and it, it's interesting because we don't have any illusion that the police are our friends. You know, we know that they have a job. They suffer economic insecurity, and and they, you know, they'll say, "I can't talk to you. I'm just, I am just following orders." I mean, um, so, you know, and we also know that there's a lot of racist violence, you know, in our communities that the police are doing. And, and but at the same time. The goal of the overall movement is to pull people to our side, and they're a key pillar. And so the way that we do that is, you know, we do speak to them um, when we can uh, at actions or, you know, when I was being pulled out of the Senate debate and the police were pulling me out, after we got out of the door of the debate and they were taking me, you know, through the uh, foyer and out across the plaza to the street where they released me, you know, I was explaining the whole way. The reason I'm doing this is because our political system restricts our political dialogue and we're putting forth, you know, things that people need, health care, you know, co paying for college. These are issues that impact you too. There's a reason why we need to have this, you know, debate there. And, and one of them winked at me as they were like letting me go, you know, it was an encouraging sign. So we have to try to reach them when we can, um, at the same time understanding that when they get that order, they're going to make a decision, and we can't guarantee what that decision is going to be. Yeah, I guess that's kind of more what I was 
getting that too. It's just in our experience, or my experience, I have a very, and I'm my brother's a police officer, and I still have a very hard kind of trust relationship. No, <laughs> very, hard. It's, very a, hard. it's a culture of lying. Right. Our military is a culture of lying, and our police force is a culture of lying. So. I used to be a criminal defense lawyer, and we called it testa-lying. When the police testified. They were very professional <laughs> at testifying. And the judges were very professional, pretending they accepted it as truth. <laughs> um, so my last question, and well, I hope that maybe it's my last question. Um, we talked about it a little bit, but I, I think that a lot of people so who aren't so politically active are, but are looking for some other place to put their efforts. They are... I think waiting for a new political party. I haven't gotten the impression yet that you know Greens or Socialist Alternative or the various parties that exist or the Democratic Socialists of America are at the point now that they're considering forming a progressive independent party, for example. I'm wondering if you guys, because you're obviously much more plugged in with the different leadership, do you see at least a dialogue happening in that direction? Do you think that would be a positive move forward? And uh, yeah, just how do you see it kind of, is it going to happen within the next four years? Is it going to take 10 years, like we were saying? What do you see it you know, the, We've gotten involved, and I've gotten much more involved than I initially intended to, in uh, kind of working with other Green Party members to build a stronger Green Party so that we really are ready to confront, really have political power. Um, I think I do this because I see it as essential. We on the left have got to organize for political power. I see the Green Party as, as one of the best vehicles for that right now because it has existed for a number of decades and has the strongest national presence of any left political party. That said, it also has a lot of issues that need to be dealt with. And that's where we're putting our energy right now is to try to see if we can work through those issues. And if we can't, then we'll have to find another political vehicle. At the same time, there is discussion happening, and it started uh, two years ago in Chicago. There was a conference, the first conference for left-elect, bringing the various left political parties together to start to talk about, is there a way that we can work together? Unfortunately, at the same time that that happened was when Bernie Sanders announced that he was going to run for president as a Democrat, and that created all this confusion because people were like, oh, maybe he's our chance. And there were many of us who had seen that game before we knew how it worked out that were like, oh, darn, you know, there goes a lot of energy that we could have used to build this independent political force right now. And, and the Democrats are very effective. Actually, it was right after that conference that Bruce Dixon of Black Agenda Report wrote an article, Bernie Sanders sheepdogging for the Democrats. And people got a lot of pushback for, for, for having that correct critique. Um, that conversation is beginning again. Um, they're going to do a second left-elect conference, hopefully in May of this year. And we'll see you know, what comes out of that. I support any vehicle that allows us to build left political power. And, and so if we can somehow form a coalition um, that can cooperate and support each other to get people into office, that would be fantastic. There are discussions about uh, bringing the various parties together. Uh, we have a wide variety of left parties. We have progressive parties in Vermont and Oregon. We have uh, other similar parties in, uh, uh, in uh, 
Minnesota and a labor party, the labor activists that are running independently in Ohio. We have the socialists, various socialist parties. Uh, we have the Peace and Freedom Party with the Green Party. So there's a lot of them. All added up, they're not that big. But there's still a lot of parties. And I think together we would be stronger. Uh, and there are conversations about how we can work together. And I think we can work together certainly on issues. We can work together certainly on uh, uh, reform of democracy, reform of elections. Uh, so there are those kinds of issues. Can we work together actually running candidates? And that, I think, is the big challenging one. And I don't think it's out of the question. Uh, I think we can certainly support each other's candidates at local and state levels where we're not in competition, because that's often the case. And so that's easy. We can put our support behind that. Um, and I think uh, when we, we can create a, um, a vehicle, a structure, where we can even jointly select candidates. And I'm thinking, of course, at the presidential level, that would be essential. Mm -hmm. um, and I'd like to see that happen. I think we'd be stronger for it. If we could all step up together and say we support this candidate, that would be a, an incredible breakthrough. And we could have everyone working together with one focus. There are structural problems in the election system that make that difficult. Um, some states get ballot access based on what percentage vote they get in a presidential race. So if a party wants to keep their ballot status, they need to get 1% or 5% of the vote. And so getting behind another party's candidate deprives them of that. And so I think we'd have to have some kind of agreement where uh, uh, in, that we work together on ensuring ballot access uh, for multiple parties and we do joint ballot access drives or something to minimize that harm. But that is a big problem. Uh, and people also see their presidential candidate as their spokesperson that lays out their agenda, their vision. And so that's another hurdle. So I, I, you know, I think it's possible and I think it could be actually happen more quickly than we expect. Uh, to have a kind of unified left-elect um, campaigns and candidates. But uh, we have to have a very honest conversation about our weaknesses are, uh, how we organize each party, some parties who are more hierarchical, some that are more grass, uh, grassroots. And so those issues are, are, have to be brought out and discussed, and we have to decide how we go forward together. But there at least is an effort to make that happen, and I think that's a gigantic first step. We've been kind of talking about there definitely needs to be the presidential candidate at least is always seen as sort of a spokesman for the larger movement. Spokesperson. Spokesperson, excuse me. Yeah. <laughs> um, but we aren't sure who, as of now, like what leaders are kind of rising up that would be that spokesperson. I don't think we necessarily know who those people are right yeah. now. Um, you know. Who knew Donald Trump would be president two years ago? <laughs> I mean, so I don't think we know in our own, on the left side, we have a, a social movement that's growing so rapidly. Um, and it really is growing by thousands and thousands, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, um, that we don't necessarily know who that leader is going to be. Um, someone may take an action that creates an incredible amount of uh, confidence in that leadership ability of that individual. Someone may write a book or an article that just is such clear thinking and lays out where the movement is and what it could be and what our country could be. 
that it could just generate that person to the top of the list. And so I don't think we necessarily know um, who that person is. I don't, I, frankly, I don't see anyone who's a current political leader, someone who's a politician for the left, as that person. Um, I think they all play good roles. They all help to push things forward. They you know, all get their messages out as clearly as they can. But I don't think anyone right now has the personality uh, to bring everybody, to unite, yeah. to unite so all these. You're not going to run into Well, I think, I think a white male um, is probably the least likely <laughs> <laughs> to be that person. So I kind of take myself out of the running for that. Right. <laughs> for President 2020? People have uh, raised that as a possibility, and I really have no idea. I, my goal, again, is who's going to be the most effective person, and that's who I'm going to support. Do you think the left could come together in those four years to put a, a solid... Yeah, it's possible. I say we should be working very hard to yeah. do that. We know that there is a political vacuum opening up right now in this country, and, uh, and, and there is a major vacuum absence on the left of power. We really have to organize now to build that power if we're going to get the transformation we need. So that's a high priority. There's a political vacuum, plus it's a massive movement building. Yeah. We need to fill that third point, which is we need to have that electoral spokesperson who can speak for the movement and fill that vacuum. And if we find that person, I think we should consciously try to tear down any barriers of partisan politics on the left uh, and get behind that person because we have a, it's a, it really is an opportune time. Okay, welcome back, everybody. That was my talk with Kevin and Margaret. Um, I hope you enjoyed it. I mean, like I said before, there was a ton of information in there, so feel free to go back and uh, take notes as you need to. Um, I'm joined here now with producer uh, Randy M. Salo. How you doing, Randy? Hey, Blake. Good morning. Uh, I'm doing a lot better than last week. <laughs> yeah. um, now that we, now that we know that Biden won, mm -hmm. um, regardless of what other people think, mm -hmm. uh, we know he won. So I'm doing pretty good, and yeah. it was um, nice to actually reflect on a lot of the, the things that Kevin and, and Margaret talked about in their and in, in their in their interview with you and 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 think about how well I mean there's still a lot of work to do yep. you know even with a same, yeah. democratic win um, this election cycle the work doesn't stop right yeah I thought the same I think only because of the the way that it all shook out I mean Trump still got 70 million votes and yep. I think like Laura Ingram said he's going to be the leader of that party. <laughs> right. And and <laughs> when come. and when he eventually leaves the White House this right. year uh, or next year, at the beginning of next year, he he very likely would be the candidate for 2024. Yeah, it's looking because, more and more that way. I mean, unless he decides not to, it's it's hard to imagine any personality bigger than his. Yeah, I mean, I feel like he would be the kingmaker, then if not him, then he would be the one to have to say Ivanka. Oh god. <laughs> I heard this rumor. <laughs> Um, yeah, yeah, but I mean, I, I felt the same because um, I was a little worried, or I have had the thought in my head always that these interviews maybe would lose a little bit of their relevance. But I think we both have said over and over that uh, because the movement was not based on being Democrat or Republican, but being, you know, a revolutionary. Yeah, uh, these fights still happen, and I would say even more so under a Biden administration, we need to put 
our foot on the gas even more. We have an opportunity now to really turn a corner and yeah. and hopefully not only address a lot of the bad shit that's happened over the four years, but start really making some progress on, yeah, just making things better for people in general. And hopefully that'll be what is necessary to chip away at that Trump base, right? Right, because when, I mean, when the Republicans have the, the executive branch and they control the Senate and now the Supreme Court, mm-hmm. as it were, um, it's even, it, it's like, it's kind of off the table to get any progressive change, right? right? And with a, even a moderate Democrat in the White House, there is a chance now to fight for, right. you know, progressive change. And I would bring this directly to what we talk about in the interview of the the 3.5% of the population mobilized in order to actually make some change because, you know, that 3.5, according to the historical context that they talk about in this book, Why Civil Resistance Works, which is a great book. I would totally recommend anybody who's interested in this stuff to check that out. It's a, a wealth of historical knowledge on this stuff. Um, Can you just clarify? I actually mm-hmm. had that as one of my questions. Can you clarify exactly what she means? Is she saying that if... If, for instance, Medicare for all mm-hmm. is 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 widely accepted by the or like or is widely popular with American right. people, and you have three and a half percent of the American people actually on the street, yeah, mobilized, yeah, not for even just, and like, but do yeah, like you said, actions actively pressing people, like making media campaigns, going to you know to Capitol Hill and picketing people, like making it every day. I mean, you can think about it the way that. Uh, Trumpism grew because we were bombarded with that shit every day. Yeah. And we need to take a tip from that. And what they're talking about is that if there's a mobilized, uh, yeah, sort of like militant radical group that's willing to do that, put in the work. Uh, I mean, Ralph Nader speaks about this in his book as well, that you just have to have like a, a really mobilized and not professional, but... Um, Organized. Yeah, focused, you know, like goal-oriented group that's going to push these things. Right. There's no way a Trump or a Biden or, a, you know, a Supreme Court or a Congress is going to be able to stop them because they're going to galvanize enough people to put it over the top. And the examples they use, I think, are really relevant to what we're talking about. Uh, we talk about them in episode three, two, I believe, you know, abolition. That was not something that either party wanted to have happen, but there was enough, a small group of dedicated people that made it an issue and put it on the ballot every time until finally they, they won. And same thing with labor movement, child labor laws, civil rights. These aren't things that the people in power are just going to give to you. It, it requires this, now we know, historically seeing, it requires this like dedicated small group of people to push these into the mainstream mm-hmm. or in, into the consciousness of people, at least the electorate. I mean, uh, I don't know if this is a comparison, but certainly what happened in the wake of the of the George Floyd protests mm-hmm. that, you know, the national discussion, apart from being about corona, was also about racial injustice. Yeah. And that even was like a major talking point of Biden's acceptance speech yeah. the other day, which, mm-hmm. I, I mean, I guess any Democratic president would have maybe a, address this, but it seemed a little bit more front and center. Um, and, and it makes you wonder if there, there could actually be 
uh, I mean, maybe not defunding the police mm-hmm. in, in across the board, but if there will, if there could be um, significant kind of change yeah. and reform because mm-hmm. of that, because those people were mobilized. Right. I mean, all exactly. over the world in yeah, a way. Yeah, I mean, yeah. that's, that's, well, that's pressure. That's a perfect yeah. example. Like Black Lives Matter as an organization uh, is not a huge amount of people. It's, again, like this small, dedicated, organized group that was able to galvanize millions of people all over the world by organizing these these marches and these direct action politics. Yeah, we have a Black Lives Matter it, uh, Munich, Munich yeah, yeah, right. and, chapter. And that's what they're getting at is uh, these movements rarely, if ever, are a top-down kind of affair. I mean, this is, to my mind, the real how you can separate kind of the MAGA Tea Party version and the Occupy resistance version of things. It could be said that the Tea Party thing was an organic kind of reaction to Obama. Mm-hmm. And we can talk about whatever, I don't want to get into it now, but what the factors were for those things. But it's also very clear that it only became a huge national thing because it was pump full of money from the same kind of dark dark money donors that prop up Republican politics anyway. Right, And it wasn't like Occupy, which was literally a few people throwing out the idea and then, you know, thousands of people going, yeah, yeah, I think I want to do that. And then it was from the, from the bottom up, right? This grassroots organization we talk about all the time. I mean, it's interesting that because Bernie kind of represented... Yeah, great example. Yeah. Uh, uh, represented this, but also represented the kind of candidate that could have been top down, yeah. right? Because he was championing a lot of things like Medicare for All. Mm-hmm. And because he did that, it caused like a grassroots yep. movement and put pressure yeah. on all the other candidates to start yeah. embracing it exactly. as well, yeah. right? And this is, I think, the point they're getting at and the point that comes up over and over again in this book we're talking about, Why Civil Resistance Works, is that... Uh, once you get this mobilized movement and the momentum starts going your way, it's just impossible for politicians who rely on public opinion to ignore you anymore at that point. And then, yeah, then they have to start making choices. Um, Since we talked about um, Black Lives Matter Mm -hmm. and we talked about like grassroots organizing, there's something that I believe Margaret mentions um, early on in the interview that I thought was kind of interesting and I never really had thought of it before, but what she said is that we need networks of activists mm-hmm. versus professional activist mm-hmm. organizations mm-hmm. Um, because the the professional activist organizations, basically like nonprofits in the U.S., right. they're, they, they sort of create this system of siloing mm-hmm. uh, causes, mm-hmm. and then their only goal is to raise enough money to right. run their organization right. for this one cause. Right. And I thought that was kind of an interesting topic, which... Uh, I don't know if you can speak uh, to any more about this idea of the difference between um, a network of activists ver- mm-hmm. versus having some kind of centralized nonprofit. Yeah, I mean, I think as far as I've learned about this, because to be honest, I hadn't really heard this um, debate until I met Margaret and Kevin, this notion of like professional activists being these uh, nonprofits that you're talking about. Mm-hmm. And... I think the main difference is that these nonprofits can also be used to funnel money into, you know, political campaigns and things like this, where uh, uh, activists, a network of activists are much more going to, are theoretically going to be more interested in like direct action politics, taking to the streets, doing these movements to create awareness. And 
I'm still a little skeptical of like once you start bringing money into the thing, it automatically changes the character of it and you have yeah. to start looking out for your bottom line at some point. But I would say that just on a technical perspective, the nonprofits, it is true. I mean, this is documented that they are mostly worried about covering their budgets every year and paying themselves. So even though it's a nonprofit, you know, a CEO of a nonprofit is still taking home pretty good paycheck. And I think then becomes a question of like, well, what are you really doing this for? Right. And, and but I, I, at the same time, I would kind of disagree in some sense that I think we need more allies than enemies right now. And, yep. um, I guess there's also a danger in like when a movement um, takes hold mm-hmm. and an organization is formed because of that, yeah. and then what happens inside that organization right. that can affect yeah. the outcome of that movement, right. such as maybe the Women's March. Uh, yeah, good example. Yeah. I, I don't know a whole lot about that history, but I know that a lot of things in the organization right. itself there's a lot of kind of went south. And yeah. yeah. Because of these things that we're talking about, this sort of like, well, what is this, a corporation or a, an activist organization, right? Yeah. And that's more what I think when we talk about activist organizations like Black Lives Matter, they're not, they're very transparent, right? And it's not, it's a democratic organization. So there's like clear bylaws and rules involved for like how the money is to be spent, who gets to like make those decisions and how long. Mm-hmm. These all come from, you know, leftist theory of how to like create a grassroots federal, you know, network. Yeah. I mean, this, what she's talking about is not new. There's been theories about this since the 1800s of how would you create like a grassroots a movement that represents all of these various grassroots movements, like regional movements, and build these into a national movement. And it requires transparency, it requires like a democratic structure, some kind of constitution that's like telling everybody, everybody knows what the deal is. In a nonprofit, it's a corporation. And so their main thing is to try to keep the thing going, right? Keep the money coming in so that you can keep paying people. And it's a top-down situation. It's still a hierarchy. And you have to work your way up like any other company if you want to start having a voice in that that system where, and the other one, like the way DSA is built is a great example it all starts with their grassroots local chapters who then send delegates to the state chapters who then send delegates to the national chapter. Oh, right. That's and what she talks about when she says this bottom-up Maria. Exactly, yeah. And, like, Maria, her only uh, mandate then is to do what the state, you know, delegates and the various city chapter delegates have told her to do. <laughs> Interesting. It's not like in, or even in an American government system where you elect somebody and then they get to tell everybody what to do from there on. Or in ours, is a winner take all. So if you lose, sorry, now you have to listen to this asshole for four years, yep. and regardless of what you think or want. I'm kind of reminded of um, the, the resistance series mm. um, that when you were on the ground in D.C. covering the, the protests of the inauguration and how you had all of these different groups mm-hmm you know, working together to sort of like shut down, um, you know, the entrances to the inauguration. So, I mean, these are all autonomous activist groups, all with different, all all focused on different priorities or different causes, um, but all kind of working together for this collective. Is this what she's talking about? Yeah, this is like what Margaret's point is, is, and what their whole... 
reasoning for doing popular resistance, like they talk about, is to really illustrate to people that these movements are connected. They're not working uh, apart from each other. They have to be working with each other if they're going to win anything, right? And yeah, you're totally right. The J20 actions were a really great example of how that would work. They each get to have their autonomous goal and thing that they're working for, but they are all working within the framework of working to, that we're not going to win just one thing, to yeah. quote Margaret, right? If we don't all work together, we're never going to transform instead of reform. Right, and they didn't have to lose their voice or their That's message the thing. And in I the process. And I think Shama Sawant also mentions this in hers, that for socialist alternative, it would be really important that they would be able to maintain their autonomy in any kind of bigger national coalition and fight for the things that they think are important. But you have to all come from the same, at least, position of respect and, um, what would you say, that you're willing to collaborate and compromise with people that you at least have affinities and similar goals in mind, right? And that's not easy to do either. I mean, I yeah. think a lot of us are, you know, for lack of a better term, brainwashed from a young age to accept like a hierarchical system is mm -hmm. the only one that can work because you have to have somebody telling everybody what to do or else nothing gets done. Right. And so I think it takes a lot of that like, you know, mind work <laughs> of showing people a different way, which like you said, the J20 actions are a great example of, of how that's done compared to the Women's March, right? Women's March is very much a top-down affair and it had brought out a lot of people. But I think there could be an argument for like how much more empowering was it for an activist sitting or blocking an entryway as, I mean, I, I don't want to take away anybody's, you know, feelings or empowerment from those marches, but I think there is an argument to be had of what really gets people fired up. We were just talking about this too, of like in electoral politics, what is it that really gets people motivated to come out and vote for somebody and not just against somebody else? Yeah. I think that's something that's the Democratic Party has yet to really get their hands around. Yeah. And I think this is what she's talking about. Those, we have to mobilize not just on a single issue. It has to be on the multitude of issues that we're all fighting for. And the way that Kevin breaks it down, uh, you know, economic, racial, and environmental justice, I think any objective observer would say that that is sort of the main three things that kind of tie all these movements together is that we recognize that there is an imbalance in the way that certain people get to live, especially in America, and mm. the way that the rest of us get to live. This is exactly what Brian Jones from the now defunct right. Justice, Justice Party, Party was yeah. talking about in the uh, in episode right. three, I believe, of this podcast. And um, I mean, this is one of the main reasons for the whole project is we wanted to illustrate that, yeah, we're talking to all these people from different organizations, and they're all kind of saying the same thing, right? So right. <laughs> there is a desire out there, obviously, to start bringing these groups together in a more formalized way so that we have some kind of electoral power. But I think Kevin and Morgan are also correct in that, I mean, they didn't come out and say this, this is me reading the tea leaves, I guess, but that the, pres the office of the president is maybe not the place where we need to be putting all of our, we've talked about this before, put all of our eggs in that basket or putting so much of our energy. Yep. Um, I think Chris Hedges in another interview I saw lately, he described it really great, was the office of the presidency has always been and will always be like the custodian for the corporate state. His his or her job yep. is to maintain the corporate state and make sure that it stays where it's always been, right? 
in the hands of the aristocrats and the oligarchs. I wonder how that would have changed under a, a, a President uh, Sanders. Yeah. I mean, this is, yeah. I mean, it would have, could have, should have. It's but a great I, thought experiment, I think, too, because uh, we were just talking about this, too, is I really believe that a Sanders candidacy would have garnered the kind of turnout that would have been needed to really crush Trumpism, you know? And unfortunately, what we got is now we're going to have to live with this going forward. And I really believe that a candidate, even if it wasn't Sanders, but some candidate that was pushing Medicare for all, was pushing this new vision yeah. of how to transform America yeah. instead of like, how do we just go back to Obama, which is essentially what the pitch was, right? We got to heal. We got to go back to a time before Trump. And I don't think that turned on the other like 10 million people he would have needed to really make the statement of like, mm-hmm. I mean, when Joe Biden gets up on stage and says, this is not who we are, I just have to kind of like shake my head. Like, I don't know where he's coming from with that. 70 million people obviously agree or are not are bothered, okay with. <laughs> are not bothered by Trumpism. And so to say that this is not who America is, I think is disingenuous a little bit. And it, it kind of ignores the actual fight that we have to have now. Yeah. Because my what I think of all the time is like, imagine, let's if we're doing thought experience. Let's imagine if Obama had actually pushed for a single payer system when he had Congress, when he could have yep. done what all Republicans do is just cram shit down. You know, imagine if in two thousand what was it two thousand nine two thousand ten yep. they had really been like, no, sorry, we're not getting rid of the single payer. This is part of the system, and then. I mean, there's always the argument that that would have lost him the White House down the road, but it would have been law. And then you, it actually has an impact on millions of people's lives. I can only imagine that people's opinions of it would have to have changed once they've lived with the fact that you don't have, that you can go to the doctor whenever you feel sick. Yeah. That you don't have to be afraid of losing your house because you got sick. I mean, can you imagine, like, it's, kind of difficult to imagine, but also not that hard to think how much different the electorate would be in America had they just had the courage of their convictions back then. And I think it's the same now. I mean, you look at the poll numbers, 70, over 70% want Medicare for all. Yeah, actually, um, you know, since since the election and since the uh, there's been some moderate Democrats who complain that um, it's the progressives who are the reason why, um, like, we lost so many House seats, mm-hmm. for instance, mm-hmm. um, because they say, oh, there's too much screaming about defund the police uh-huh. and Medicare for all and, and socialist mm-hmm. government programs mm-hmm. that it scared away more moderate voting Democrats. Right. Um, and and so the, the votes often went to um, more Republican candidates. And um, I think AOC has a pretty good rebuttal to this because she pointed out that every single... Uh, Democrat who uh, was running for right. a house that was in favor of Medicare for all was reelected yeah. or elected. Yeah, I mean, Justice Democrats and Our Revolution Democrats, you know, these two, one started by Sanders, the other like a grassroots progressive organization within the party. I mean, they, I forget the number now, we'll have to look, but they won, I want to say Our Revolution won almost like over 50% of the seats they they put up like they had huge wins like in yep. the same same with justice democrats who are the people that got aoc on 
on the ballot. Right. I mean, they had they had significant wins within their organization. So I think this is a lot of fear mongering and yeah. false consciousness on the part of the Democrats. Um, because I mean, like we talk about in in the series, this whole socialist boogeyman thing is not helping democratic causes and it's really not helping their electoral chances yeah. in the future. I mean, I mean, but what we do see is that like w- with time, although it feels terribly slow mm-hmm. when you're living in it, um, mm-hmm. these progressive ideas are becoming more mainstream. Yeah. I mean, candidates like AOC yeah. uh, 10 years ago would be unheard of right. or Bernie Sanders. Yeah. And I mean, even Margaret um, was arrested for, yeah. you know, going to a hotel where Obama was speaking right. and she was, you know, holding a banner up for Medicare for all mm-hmm. and the police come and kind of dragged her away. Yeah. Um, because that was so such a radical idea right. in 2010, yeah. but in 2020 we see that that's not so radical anymore. Yeah. And um, yeah, I guess these incremental changes are. I mean, although we want everything to happen at once, at least we can see that the, things are shifting, chipping away at it, chipping yeah. away at mm-hmm, it, mm-hmm. and um, it will be harder to chip away at that as long as there's a Republican in the White House yep. and in control of the Senate mm-hmm. and the and the and the courts for that matter. But uh, at least there's a fighting chance now yep. uh, to to maybe make some policy changes that will improve people's lives so yep. that they agreed. Um, can, yeah, so they don't buy into the vitriol of the other side. So. Mm-hmm. And something I was thinking about a lot and listening to their interview again, uh, when they start talking about electoral power, electoral politics, and how, what an uphill battle that is for, I mean, in their case, they're both, uh, are they, you know, Kevin was always involved, but he was, you know, a, uh, advisor on the Nader campaign, advisor in the Stein campaign. Margaret's been heavily involved in green politics. She's still national co-chair. Ran for U.S. Senate. Great video. I encourage everybody. The video she talks mm. about uh, where she gets dragged off the debate stage is yep. definitely it, worth the watch. It's on YouTube. Yeah, it's so worth the watch. Please go check that out. Um, but so from just that kind of minor perspective of the Green Party being, I would say at this point, the biggest sort of national party on the left, um, just the uphill battle and all the bullshit. I mean, this comes back to a, another topic of why we don't have kind of a standardized, I mean, this election of all elections proved what how ridiculous it is to let each state decide how they're going to do this. Yeah, It's so antiquated. I don't know why we keep doing it this way. It's yeah. so ridiculous. And the irony is that they're all saying actually things went relatively smoothly considering no, there no. was a, um, a pandemic and but it's so easy to sow doubts. That's the thing. Uh, because of all of these people having different rules, yeah. it's easy for somebody to say, oh, there's fraud because this state allows it this way, this state right. allows it this way. Right. Yeah, and it just opened it, it, it Because of that, it opened it up to have all these lawsuits, like you said, because if we had a standardized system, at least for federal elections, then you know everybody knows exactly how this is going to go, and there's no question of... Even if there's a pandemic or, you know, yeah. like this... This is how we do it all the time, people. Yeah. It's a federal election. And 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 that should be part of like our public education mm-hmm. that people understand and know how that system works. Yeah. So that you don't have people in Florida, Republicans yeah. in Florida, seeing 
oh, why why in Pennsylvania are they allowing votes to come in right. three days after the election? Exactly. You know, like because they don't understand, they don't understand what happens yeah. at the state level and the decisions that were made right. there. There there should just be a yeah some yeah. kind of universal law that everybody understands so you can't question it yeah. all the time. Yeah. And unfortunately, this is another thing like the Electoral College, this is a constitutional issue. So this has to be amended at some point. And yep. at the same time, I think it's kind of like in the American zeitgeist, this whole notion of like states' rights of applying to every little thing. <laughs> yep. And Kavanaugh and Gorsuch are right. two people that have come out recently yeah. on, on state a ruling that leg- just the state controversies yeah. are the only ones responsible for doing this. So yeah. not even the governor, yeah. you know, so they kind of are suggesting that, well, if the legislators de- ch- yeah. decide to change the rules now after the election, right. they have the sole right. Yeah. And the the courts, the, the judges, the governor and the Supreme Court don't really have any yeah. jurisdiction over that. And that's, this is why whenever anybody says states' rights to me, it, yeah. I, I immediately hear like... Racism. <laughs> yeah. Because, like, yeah, I, mean, I that's, mean, that's the same thing they use for slavery, same thing yeah. they use for civil rights, for yeah, voting rights. It's always like, oh, we can't tamp on states' rights. I'm like, well, there has to be some universal right. <laughs> thing that we say like all Americans, oops, sorry, all Americans are, you know, have this right, right? And yeah. if you're going to do that, then it has to be a nationwide system. And if we're not doing that, then it's... Yeah, I mean, the people that are screaming for this to mean, remain a state-controlled func- issue are the people that don't want many people to vote. I mean, yeah, the only way we get all this like voter suppression is because state legislatures do this shit. Yeah, and I mean, the irony of this whole election was like the people screaming the loudest were are are people who want to limit yeah. who can vote and how. Yeah. I mean, that's what it's all. That's what mm-hmm. it's been about, you know? Mm-hmm. It's just like, apart from like blatantly lying that there's fraud or, yeah. you know, like fabricating uh, ideas of fraud, it's just like one side wants to limit who can vote and how. And and I mean... This... Uh, but to... S- we're getting a little off, but to swing it back to, to Margaret's yeah. point, Margaret and Kevin's point, that the system has always kind of been this way. Like the, f- the idea that we've always been forced into the duopoly... Mm. is also super undemocratic you're you're almost censoring a whole another group of people a whole another aspect of american politics that doesn't even get a chance to make a pitch you know yeah and i think this is the point they get out to all the time and what we kind of discussed of it can be kind of difficult when you've been involved in these things like for somebody like kevin who's been doing you know who's doing this stuff since the 60s i would say though just to, for a moment to talk about Kevin again, one of the most gracious people I've ever met, like not a bitter bone in his body, really. Like Mm. he was really, it was one thing that stood out to me all the time was that he was never in it to like settle a score or anything. It was like this pure, he really believed that this is a better, you know, (laughs) and that was something that was always really inspiring to me too for meeting them is they're they come from a really pure place with what they're doing mm-hmm. um but the, like what they said is that now you know they say this over and over again with trump it just brought all of these inequalities and these issues to the forefront because trump doesn't have a, a you know a he doesn't have any way to like filter what's coming out of his mouth so he just yeah. says basically i'm going to use the system to fuck all these people out of their vote you know yeah. where <laughs> where other presidents and other politicians might have been a little more sly and coy yeah. about it. 
use and, some window dressing too. Exactly. And and I think that's definitely worth remembering going into this new administration is that I don't know how to say it any nice. These people aren't your friends. <laughs> you know? Uh however much we want to like Uncle Joe and everything, uh we need to I have to stay vigilant. We need to remember where he comes from and what he has done and not just assume that because of what's happened that that that's going to change anything from the Democratic Party perspective. Yep. We're the ones, like Kevin says, we're the ones that have to be vigilant, like you said, and we're the ones that have to continue to be working for people's issues, not party corporate issues. Right. Because... We know now that the Democrats and the Republicans are not going to put these issues up like we talked about in the beginning of this analysis. It's the people, it's the movements that always get the change. It's never the people that are in power. The people in power are just trying to maintain their power. And I think this is, this is what the main thing that I got from their discussion is that we have to unite these movements, right? getting rid of the silos, getting rid of these power structures that are keeping us from finding this you know, leader that, we're, hmm. that we need in the left right now. I'm pitching AOC. I, mean, I was just going to say. I'm yeah. thinking, I mean, she, yep. I don't know anybody on the left. I mean, there's a lot of people on the left with different opinions, but I don't know anybody on the left. Like hardcore yeah. labor activists, hardcore whatever climate activists, they all love AOC. Yeah. Yeah, I wrote that down actually because you guys talked about it at the mm-hmm. very end of the interview. Like, and this is pre-AOC. Like nobody saw it. She wasn't even on the. Yeah, and in fact, um, Kevin kind of describes her. Um, That's right. Because he says that... Um, uh, that there would be um, young, yeah. yeah, like like that it wouldn't be a man, you mm-hmm. know, that it would be like a young person of color, yeah, um, probably female, mm-hmm. and um, yeah, we kind of described her in a way, yeah, yeah. and then uh, she kind of came along, and she has been that, yeah, that person, you know. I mean, yeah, she's just kind of like those once in a generation type of leaders. She is so eloquent and courageous. She doesn't back down from anybody or anything. Down, yeah. She hasn't, yeah. She doesn't change her Mm-mm. her focus. You know, I mean, she's not scared to be a democratic socialist. She's not, and I mean, the whole squad and now like everybody that's added to the squad uh, this time around are all going to be influential going forward. But I really see her as the potential like leader if we want to have kind the, of, the if, hope. <laughs> yeah, if we want to have a, a, a spokesperson, as Kevin put it. Yeah. I really think uh, it's going to be her. Knocking <laughs> so, yeah. Uh, but yeah, I also found that listening to that part, she was the first person that popped to my yeah, head. No, like, me oh, too. wow, crazy. Exactly. Kevin totally called that. Yeah. <laughs> so, but yeah, I mean, uh, listening to it now too was, uh, was inter- uh, I really hope, like we said, this is a chance for Kevin to continue his work and, uh, and to, and, like what we're doing to try to continue this conversation of uniting movements to form this, this power structure that we need. Okay. Well, that was the end of this episode and the end of the series, Randy. Yeah. Um, more resistance companion podcast. I mean, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna, you know, say anything prophetic, but I think we can expect more podcasts from you, Blake. Yes. I, I also am, uh, there are some, some irons in the fire as they say. (laughs) So, uh, stay tuned. To Stuist Media, we're going to be really coming out with some new stuff in this in this vein, for sure. Where can people uh, follow you so that they know about upcoming uh, videos and podcast projects? I am most active at the moment on Instagram, to be honest. I'm also on Facebook, um, 
but on Instagram, you can find me at Blakers01 is my handle on Instagram because mm-hmm. apparently there was more than one Blakers. Um, so yeah, I would say there is where I'm posting the most stuff these days. Um, and on Facebook, on Twitter, I think my handle is Blake Enroll, kind of like rock and roll, but just swap the rock for Blake. <laughs> you can find me there. I'm still, I'm still relatively new to the Twitterverse, so go easy on me. And uh, where can we find where can we find you posting, Randy? Uh, I'm not super active on Twitter, but I'm on Twitter um, at Randy M Salo one because oh, also another Randy. M. I guess there's another Randy M Salo. Weird. And I'm also on Instagram as Randy M Salo M mm. as in Maurice. Boom for those that are wondering. And of course, Stuist Media. You can find us on Facebook yep. and Instagram and LinkedIn and Vimeo. That's and right. And you can wherever also, you find your favorite podcast. Yeah, you can also search on, I think, the podcast platforms for Stuist exactly. Media Podcasts. Yeah, and you will find us there. Please, if you've enjoyed this podcast, please rate it, uh, like it, make, make a review. Make a review. That always helps um, to get our visibility up and to help us um, do our work to help the movement. And just share the message of these exactly people. Exactly right. Yeah. Um, thanks again, Randy. Thank you, Good Blake. Good talk. And uh, like you said, I'm sure we'll we'll be back soon. With, we'll be hearing you soon. We'll be back soon with some more some more stuff in this vein. The Resistance Companion Podcast is a Stuist Media podcast and is recorded in Munich, Germany. This podcast is produced by myself and Randy M. Salo. Executive producer is Janine Stengel-Lewis. The music for this podcast was composed by Kai Metzner. All the interviews featured in this podcast were recorded on location in Washington, D.C. by Dennis Provost. The Resistance Companion Podcast is part of our larger multimedia project, including a web series which you can watch at resistance.stuistmedia.com. Thanks for listening, and as always, keep resisting.